You're listening to the Banner Church Podcast, recorded in Scottsdale, Arizona. Thank you so much for listening. For more information, visit us online at banner.church. We thank you for what you're doing in this church, and I pray that as we walk through Scripture, God, that our hearts would just be open to what you want to speak. So we yield this service to you in every way, shape, and form. We pray you would speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Can we thank our worship band this morning? Awesome. We like to celebrate things. I, man, I was blown away this week, um, man, just just by our, our love this town event. And if you're like, man, they clap for a lot of things, man, that's so forced. It's like, no, it's like the world's just kind of really hard, and we like to celebrate good things, right? Like we like to just naturally, you know. I know I have a negative edge, so I sharpen the other ones, right? <laughs> and so we just like we have to be positive. That's a song that you can look it up later. Uh, but man, it was amazing. Uh, we had our adopted son with us last night uh, as we're doing our transition, and so he came with us to all these events. So it was me and Marcus and my wife and our two kids in the back just rolling around to all these different uh, events. And Marcus was taking photos. He's doing our, he's leading our creative ministry. Can we thank Marcus? It's awesome. And so uh, we were driving around, and it was just awesome to see. We had seven projects happening during the day with 52 people out serving their community. It was amazing. Uh, It was cool. Like, we were at Osborne Rehab Center for physical rehab. We were at uh, all sorts of different houses of the elderly in the community uh, or different homes that house multiple people, like care facilities. We were at uh, the art school, uh, Tonalea Elementary, uh, at Pueblo Elementary, these public schools in the area. And it's just amazing. I was telling our team in the first service, like, that makes me so happy. Uh, a couple fold. One, it made me so happy because I didn't actually have to plan any of this. Uh, and that was just, wow. As a pastor and as remembering the time when we had 20 people here and I had we had to plan everything, uh, it was just this amazing moment where Gillian, who does our small groups ministry, literally took the lead and killed it. Like, there was email communication. And I know you're like, this, so what? Trust me, that's a big deal. Uh, (laughs) There were times and locations and details, and she worked tirelessly. She does it all for free. But Gillian is just an incredible uh, leader here at Banner Church. And we are so thankful for her and for David, for their whole family. Uh, But it was just amazing. So uh, I I was blown away. And also I was blown away because I get to take my daughter to one of those schools tomorrow. And I, when we walk in, all the people talk. And if you know anything about parents when they drop their kids off, it's all chatter. That's all they do. Like half the time, I don't think that they would come even if their kid wasn't going to that school, just so they could all talk. And they talk about everything. And so to go there and be like, hey, my church did this because we love you and we love the school. That's amazing. Now, I wasn't there. Marcus and Melanie, I think, led that team. And everybody that was there, it was awesome. But I just want you to know that our job as a church is to be faithful, and it's God's job to bring the fruit. And so some of you guys, you weren't able to be there yesterday, but I want you to know, as you faithfully serve the church, you're a part of that experience that just happened. As you faithfully love on, give, serve, are a part of what God's doing here, even though you can't come to every event, you're still a part of it. So if you're like, man, I missed that, or man, I feel weird because now I wasn't there. He's going to think that I don't care about my city, but I was just busy. No, I know you love your city because if you didn't, you wouldn't be here this morning believing for change in your community. Amen? So I just want to encourage you, introverts, if you're like, that's not my jam, listen, then just serve faithfully and give faithfully, and we love you, and we bless you, and you don't have to meet strangers on the street. (laughs) God made you a special way, and uh, we don't want you to feel uncomfortable. Uh, but, man, it was really good, and I was, I was reflecting, you know, it's been, a, been an interesting week for my wife and I. We went from, um, like, accepting this child that we're going to adopt, and then they were like, okay, it's going to be like a two-week transition, and then we're going to be gone next week, and so we're going to take him because there's nothing smarter than taking a child you just met on a seven-hour car drive. Uh, <laughs> there's nothing smarter. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, But we're really, really excited about what God is doing, not only in our family, but here. And it's been a great season because God has been bringing up some incredible vision for this community and this church. But not only that, as I've been meeting with, with you guys in our church, I've been amazed to see the vision that God is stirring up in your own life. 
And the vision that God is stirring up for, for leadership, the vision that God is stirring for influence, the vision that God is stirring for, for, a, for a deep nearness to him, or opportunities in, in your workplace or your home, or the different ways he's beginning to show you your relationships and beginning to redeem things in your life. And if you're like me, you get really excited about vision, and it's like, man, this is really cool, but it's also scary. Has anyone ever been scared by vision? Cool, just me? Great. <laughs> just being vulnerable up here, great. Uh, <laughs> but God began to kind of stir up vision for us. And what, what happens, though, is when God stirs up vision, I usually encounter opposition. If you're like me, when God begins to stir up vision for your life, the destiny, plan, and purpose for your future, and what he's called you to do, there's usually some kind of opposition. What I've learned in my life is vision meets resistance in some kind of way. You begin to dream. You begin to get this dream from God for your life, for your family, or your kids. And all of a sudden it begins to meet opposition because it turns out there's actually a really big gap between when you get vision and when it's completed. Because if you got a vision for your life and it was already completed, that would just be the present. That's not really vision, right? It would just be like a different word. But the nature of it being called vision means it hasn't come yet. It hasn't happened yet. And so you're beginning to, to seed into something for the future, right? But what I noticed is every time I begin to get vision for my life, I begin to get great opposition against it. As God brings vision in my family or the church or the future or my personal growth, I begin to meet opposition. And so the first thing that I do, if I, can I be honest with you this morning? Is that okay? Okay, I'm just going to be really honest. The first thing that happens when I meet that resistance is I ask myself this question. Go with me if you've ever asked this. Was that really God or did I just really want that? Right? Has anyone had that moment like, okay, is that you, God, or am I just thinking this? Right? Like, am I just thinking, I've been thinking about this for days, and then was that you that said that to me? Or am I just like, oh, yeah, cool, that's what I actually just really want. Some of you are like, well, I don't know if you wanted me to lease that car. He probably didn't, but, you know, roll with it. It already happened. But I'm talking about the plan and purpose for your life. And in our life, I, I ask that question like, okay, God, was that really you? Was that, am I going the right way? Am I doing the right thing? Because we've been programmed in our culture to think if you're facing difficulty, it must be because of something you've done, right? So if you're in a certain situation or if you have uh, a lack of a certain thing in our culture, it's because you just need to do this. If you would just do this, then you wouldn't be, I don't know, fill in the blank. If you just did this, you wouldn't be poor. Right, we've been preconditioned to see people as, as, as lesser if they're facing difficulty financially in their health and their relationships. Like, oh my gosh, did you hear about their relationship? Oh my gosh, it's just it's falling apart. I know, why don't they just go do, it's like because people are difficult and messy and it's hard and things aren't as easy as we pretend. Like, have you seen their kids? Have you seen how their kids act, right? Like, we've been preconditioned to assume because someone's facing difficulty as a parent, they're somehow not good parents. Like, why are those connected? And so in our own life, we've been preconditioned to see difficulty as a sign of disobedience. Now, because <laughs> I don't have meetings about this later, difficulty can be a condition of disobedience. You do dumb stuff, you win dumb prizes, right? <laughs> That's how it works. Play stupid games, win stupid prizes, right? <laughs> there, you're, sometimes... Difficulty can be a result of disobedience, but that doesn't mean we should do a bunch of bad personal philosophy and worldview and then say, because I'm also facing difficulty, that must be because I'm in disobedience. Are you with me? And so just because we've been programmed to think of what happens is when God begins to give vision for our life, maybe for our family. As God begins to give vision for our family, you know, we're doing this family month. And we're saying for five weeks, we're going to invest into your family, into you as a person. Even if you're like, I don't have a family, well, you can still grow and be better. We believe in you still, right? Maybe families in your neighborhood, in your community, we're going to invest. We know that's going to face opposition. And so as God begins to stir that up, we begin to meet resistance because it turns out the enemy does not want you to succeed. Did you know that? Satan does not want you to succeed. He does not want you to have purpose. He does not want you to have joy in your life. He has come to steal, kill, and destroy. It's Jesus who has come that you'd have life to the fullest. So when God begins to wake up a, a vision in your life, the enemy is like, oh, no way. And he comes to bring resistance. I think about that in the church. Our mission as a church is that all people can experience the freedom and power of a new life in Christ. Man, I hope more than anything that that just pisses the devil off. 
Because what is the point of having a mission in your life that the devil is just okay with? Could you imagine having such a small mission and vision in your life that the enemy's like, well, yeah, that's no threat to me, so I guess dope. Like we want the kind of mission, purpose, and plan in our life that the enemy hates because we are called by God to literally stand upon the promises that have crushed the enemy under his heel. That there is life and restoration and freedom and hope that we're robbing people from hell to populate heaven. That we are a part of a mission that is so great that you can walk in and be totally locked in depression and addiction and isolation and hurt and pain, hurt by people, hurt by church, hurt by pastors, hurt by friends, hurt by family, and God can still restore you. That's our mission. And can I tell you, that makes me so happy that makes the enemy angry. Because the last thing that I would want is the enemy to be like, well, let's just keep that church there because they're doing a good job of nothing. <laughs> they're not a threat to me at all. And so we kind of know we're promised in this world you have trouble, but take heart for I have overcome the world. We know if we have a mission from God, a plan, a purpose, a destiny in our life from the Lord, that we're going to face trouble. So then what do we do? Because the answer isn't just like, oh, well, Pastor Josh said this was going to happen, so I guess everything's cool now. That can't be the answer when we're laying in bed feeling anxious about like, well, how do, what do I do now in my life? It's like, well, the pastor said just don't worry about it. <laughs> it's like, well, that's not really a good answer. So... What do we do? Every time as we go to scripture and we say, okay, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do when he faced the difficulty in opposition to what God had called him to do? Because if we're going to follow any example, it should be the example of Jesus, hence Christian. And so I want to read together. We're going to be in Mark 4. But before we get there, I want to drop a little verse into you, into your mind. <laughs> 1 John 4.4. 4. Before we get into Mark, I want to say this one verse. It's this. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. He's talking about false prophets, talking about uh, the Antichrist in this moment. He says, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. If you get anything today, if you check out for the whole rest of the sermon, maybe it gets too warm for you or you're thinking about what you're going to eat after service, trying to get some tacos or ATL, whatever it is, don't miss this part right here because it's very important. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Everybody, all the GCU students who stayed up super late last night because you have track and you got up at like 4.30 in the morning and you ran more today than I've run this whole year. Uh, <laughs> he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Let's jump into Mark. If you brought your Bible, jump to Mark chapter 4. If not, the words are going to be on the screen for you. And we're going to read two chunks of scripture. Uh, they're, they're separated by uh, a chapter, and so it goes like end of chapter 4, beginning of chapter 5, but it's all one continuous event, so we're going to link them together. Just because there's a chapter break in Scripture doesn't mean that something stops happening, right? So what we're going to see is Jesus crossing a lake with his disciples and then encountering opposition on the other side, and then immediately when we're done, though I won't read the next verses, just know they leave, so this part's over. So here we are, Mark chapter 4, verse 35. If you're with me, say amen. Amen. Here it is. On that day, when evening had come, he, meaning Jesus, said to them, his disciples, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And the other boats were with them. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Okay, hold, we're going to stop there real fast and we'll come back. Jesus was asleep in a boat. Do you know anybody like this that could sleep through an actual storm while the boat was sinking? Yes, like they set four alarms and they still don't show up for work. Yes, we all know this person. I mean, we're not going to look at them right now because, you know, there's no condemnation in Christ. But, you know, you can look at them later when you go to lunch. It says, he was asleep on the cushion. We'll explain why in just a second, so don't worry. This isn't Jesus uh, that, that doesn't wake up before the four alarms. He has a very specific purpose. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, someone say peace, peace, be still. 
And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. I love that phrase, great calm. If you like to underline, that's a great spot. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? So Jesus is teaching. If you're here last week, we talked about the parables uh, that he was teaching about. He was teaching on one side. Uh, then he commands his disciples, let's take the boat, let's go down to the other side. And then he lays down and he goes to sleep. And now what happens is as they begin to cross the lake, they're following the command of Jesus. Uh, but the Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. And so it's probably one of the lowest points in the area. I mean, Dead Sea is incredibly low as well. The Sea of Galilee. And there's a mountain to the east. This is actually the south. But there's a mountain to the east that is at 9,200 feet. And so what happens is the wind from the mountain and the air from the mountain, the cooler air, meets the warmer air around the sea. And it mixes up into a giant windstorm. And the Sea of Galilee is not super deep. And so it begins to sweep up in these large waves. And so they're in these boats, these fishing vessels. And, but they can't be super deep boats because it's not a super deep lake. And so when the waves come, they're strong waves. And it happens almost instantaneously. And they're not wrong to fear for their lives is what I'm saying. Because to have a storm like this come and begin to fill the boat was a scary thing. And the average person, you know, they, as fishermen, they were, they were swimmers. They could swim. They would dive down to get the net. So they weren't afraid of not being able to swim. But have you ever tried to swim in stormy waters? You can be a great swimmer. The ocean does not care, right? The sea does not care. A lake does not care. If there is a storm overtaking them. So the boat begins to fill with water. And they say this phrase. And Ask yourself if it sounds familiar in your life. They say, do you not care that we are perishing? We're so hard on the disciples. I just identify with them so much. Because has anyone ever said that? Like, God, do you not care that I'm dying over here? Right? Are you sleeping on me? Like, we have this thing like, God, you told me to cross over. Jesus, you told me to go here. Jesus, you told me to go to this place, to cross into this place. But now that I'm going this way, I'm literally sinking. Do you still hear me? Do you still care for me? Do you still remember me? I've had that moment. Jesus, I'm following my command. Th this job can't be part of my purpose, can it? I can't fulfill the mission that you've called me to in this school, can I? I, I, I can't live this out in this city. God, I'm drowning in this city. Why did you call me to this city if I'm, if I'm just drowning in this city? I don't feel this way. I love this city. But some of us, <laughs> I'm, I'm drowning here. God, do you care that we are perishing? And we ask that question. Because in the middle of the storm, the disciples are astonished that Jesus would command them to cross a lake and then have such peace that he could sleep in the middle of it when they're about to die in their mind. They're wondering why are they facing the things that they're facing? Why are they facing this kind of difficulty? And I want to go back to what I said at the beginning. Difficulty does not always mean disobedience. If you're a note taker, write that down. Difficulty does not always mean disobedience. You would be hard pressed to find anyone that achieved anything for the kingdom of God without some kind of difficulty. And all of us nodded yes. If you find somebody that has faced no difficulty in life, we just need to capture them in like a little bottle and preserve them forever. Because I don't know if that person exists. They've certainly not done anything in the kingdom. Because every time we begin to do something, there's going to be opposition. It's the nature of being, I don't know, in a broken world. Destiny is a path marked with difficulty. You know, one of my faith hearers is Reinhard Bonnke, and he's, uh, he was in Africa. He's recently passed away, and the guy that he raised up, Daniel Kalinda, he... Uh, does these huge revivals, and they were doing the first one since he passed away, and they were talking about getting all their flights. They have all these different eight different flights they have to catch and go to different places, and all their flights are canceled. And so they're like, we're just going to rent some cars, and we're going to drive uh, from where they were, uh, I think from Kenya to Nigeria, and don't quote me on that. 
And so they said, okay, we're just going to drive. And so they had to just drive for hours through Africa. And uh, I've never been to Africa, uh, but I have pictures in the Internet. And I will tell you, based off of those two things, that did not look super easy. There was extreme difficulty. But he said in his post, he said, we were not surprised by it because we knew that God was going to do something. And destiny is a path marked with difficulty when we begin to do things in life and we step out. If you do not want difficulty, then go in your room and lock the door and hide in the darkness, get super pale, and have people slide food under your door when it's time. You know what that's called? Prison. If you want to be free, if you want to walk in the freedom and the life that comes through Jesus Christ, if you want to be a part of the destiny, then you have to know there's going to be difficulty that comes against it. And so how can Jesus sleep in a boat when, when there's all this storm and all these things raging? Well, A, he's God, so that helps, right, <laughs> by the nature of his being. But B, he knew the destiny and plan and purpose of God on his life, of, of the mission that his father had given him and the disciples that he had called. See, if God has called you to go there, then he'll get you there. If God has called you to speak into it, then he'll allow you to speak. If God has called you, then he will equip you. That is the nature of who God is. If God has given you the vision, the plan, the purpose, he's going to be faithful to fulfill it. But what's amazing is the disciples have something powerful with them as they face difficulty, and that's Jesus Christ. See, the power to face difficulty is not ours. It's not like some mantra or self-help seminar and own your truth or live your day or whatever. It's the power of Jesus Christ. It's how we can be screaming in a boat trying to bail water out with a Dixie cup, and yet Jesus can come up and bring power. It's not by our might, right? It's by the might of Jesus Christ. And there's a couple things that are happening here. Jesus wakes up. It says he rebukes the wind, and he speaks to the sea. The language here is really important. He, he, he stands up in the boat, and they think, I imagine this moment, they wake Jesus up, and I don't know what they're expecting him to do, but they wake him up, and I'm like, you know, let's just say Alex is going to be Jesus. I'm like, hey, man, we're drowning here. You've been sleeping for like two hours, but we're dying. You didn't hear me yelling the whole time, Alec? You know, and so he gets up, and, and Jesus gets off of the boat, comes up, and you're like, okay, he's going to get a bucket. Maybe he's got, like, he's got bucket multiplication. He's going to multiply this bucket into 5,000 buckets, and then we're going to just dump it all out. And he gets up, and he, he rebukes the wind, like, hey, cut it out. Be still. Like, what? Did Jesus get a bucket? But he doesn't. He, re he rebukes the wind and the waves. A couple things are happening here that he has to give us context. First is like we love the water, uh, not so much in the ancient Near East. The, the understanding of large bodies of water wasn't like this beautiful view. It was considered the chaotic abyss. Large bodies of water were considered to be chaos. In fact, wind and waves weren't even just considered to be chaos. They were considered this kind of like idea all throughout scripture, throughout Psalms, throughout the prophets of these hostile forces that are against God. In fact, you can go all the way back to Genesis one, two, the very beginning, it says this. In the beginning, first it was the Bible, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. The darkness was over the face of the deep, and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. From the very beginning, the context was that waters and this body of water were chaotic that only God could bring order to. See, creation in an ancient Near East understanding wasn't like making something out of nothing. It was an idea of bringing order to things. And so when God is creating and, you know, the Spirit's hovering over chaos, he's creating order from chaos. Only God can create order where there was chaos. And so all throughout the Old Testament, then wind, waves, water. See, there's living water, there's living life. That's always streams and beautiful brooks and things like that. The ocean, the waves, they were hostile forces over which God prevails. Exodus 14, Job 12, Psalm 33, 73, 107, 147, Proverbs 30, Amos 4. I, I mean, all throughout, we could just go on forever. All these scriptures. Psalm 65, 7 says, God is he who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. Psalm 107 says, they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. See, water 
is only something, and the sea and the tumult of the sea was only something that God could command. It was only something that God had authority. In fact, it's what makes in the ancient Near East our God so unique versus other false gods is if we take like the Gilgamesh epic and we take these other stories of, of floods or, or accounts of different things, even the gods were surprised and overwhelmed by water. In fact, when they go to, when they go to find Gilgamesh after the flood, they're surprised to find him alive because the chaos of the water is so beyond their control. In scripture, the true mighty God that we know is said to have power over the wind and waves himself. And now Jesus is linking. Are you still with me? Say amen. Amen. I'm a little warm, so thank you whoever's turning those fans on. The second thing isn't just that the water is powerful, but that Jesus takes command over it. See, this is why what we're, what we're reading in 4 and what we're reading in 5 are linked is because the language that Jesus uses here is really important. When Jesus says things, we should probably pay attention. And it says about Jesus that he got up and rebuked, or the word there is reproved, the wind. That word is used in Mark twice as a technical term in Jewish exorcisms for the commanding word uttered by God or his spokesman by which evil powers are brought into submission and the way is thereby prepared for the establishment of God's righteous rule in the world. And then he says, be still. That word, pefimoso, means to literally to muzzle. It's in the first person. He's speaking, not to an inanimate idea or a theory. It'd be like, Patrick, you're going to be uh, the ocean because you're wearing this cool blue shirt and you made eye contact with me in this moment. Uh, but it would be like me coming to Patrick and literally rebuking him. I'm sorry, I love you. You're walking in faith. Uh, rebuking him and then saying to him, basically, knock it off and calm down. <laughs> It's essentially that there's an authority there. It's like a, you know, there, there's an authority speaking into a place. And so this is how Jesus speaks to the storm. And so if you are a disciple, you have to imagine that would be confusing. We're like, why were they so afraid? Really? Because God spoke to the sea and told it to cut it out. That would terrify me. If I'm hanging out with Jesus, I'm not really sure who he is yet. I haven't made up my mind if he's God yet. And I'm like, hey, man, you got to wake up. We're all about to die. And he gets up and he looks at the water and says, you knock it off and get out of here. Like he's doing an exorcism. Like Jesus performed an exorcism on the ocean. That would be shocking. <laughs> I'd be like, ah, I am also afraid. Like thanks for leading the way with the fear, Peter. <laughs> You're always first, but I'll be right behind you. But there's a moment here that's powerful because what, what is being said and spoken throughout time is that Jesus can speak peace into the greatest chaos. If you're taking notes, write this down. Jesus can speak peace into the greatest chaos. Jesus literally does like an exorcism on the Sea of Galilee. No matter how chaotic, no matter how overwhelming, no matter how anxiety-ridden your situation is, Jesus Christ can bring peace where there was once chaos. You, you will not find anything in this world that has the authority and the power to bring, bring peace like Jesus Christ. You cannot find anything that will bring peace to your relationships like Jesus Christ. You cannot find anything that will bring peace to your family like Jesus Christ. You can find things that will bring some kind of peace. You can find things that will bring some kind of peace to your mind and your heart and your spirit. But you will never find anything like Jesus Christ that will bring true peace because only only Jesus can speak peace into the greatest chaos. And it says the disciples were afraid. They're afraid because they're facing a God who is mighty and powerful. And the disciples missed it because Jesus didn't just come to calm that storm. He, calmed, he came to calm the storm in us, to calm the storm in Israel. They were like a people battered and beaten. He came to bring calm. And so Jesus says, have faith. Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And this is so important because we were even talking about this in my small group. How many of us get hung up on the idea of faith? Like how much do I need Jesus? Like a leader? How much is enough faith? 
Well, a mustard seed. Well, how much faith is that? We're talking in our small group. Like, how much is that? It's like two traumatic events, one financial crisis. How much is like enough? How much is a mustard seed amount? Because apparently if I get that and I plant it, I can move mountains with my mind. Like, well, that doesn't seem right at all. <laughs> that seems like a twisted understanding of faith. See, faith is not about formula. It's about fatherhood. It's about will I trust my heavenly father is God in the middle of my storm. Right, well, I trust that even though I'm being tossed around by the wind and the waves, even though I'm confused, even when everything's come against me, will I have faith that God is still who he says he is? Will I have faith that though things aren't going the way I thought they would go when I was in college and now I'm out of college, things aren't going the way I thought. I'm in the storm in my relationships. I'm in the storm in my job. I'm in the storm in my finances. I feel like I'm just all getting mixed around. Will I still trust that God is who he says he is? Is God still God even though I'm in a storm? Some might look at your faith and say, man, that's so small. And you're like, well, all I could muster was a mustard seed. Just this little amount. But we say, man, I, I'm going to give it to God and say, God, I trust you even in the midst of this. That he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. That's what we have to ask ourselves in the middle. This is why Jesus is asleep. Because he knows that his plan and purpose is greater than his storm. He knows that God has called them to something greater. So he knows that they won't sink and die. Because he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And so he gets the other side of the lake. And if, if Jesus thought like we thought, then he would get to the other side of the lake and be like, now I need my self-care day. But he gets to the other side of the lake, and he's like, well, Sabbath is in a couple days, but today is work day. And so he gets to the other side of the lake, and what happens immediately, he not, having just encountered the storm, he now encounters an epic storm inside of a person. And these two things are meant to parallel each other. They use similar language of exorcism. They use similar language of a storm and tumult and chaos. The chaos, the greatest natural chaos was a sea. The greatest supernatural chaos was demonic possession. And I know we have all these shows now where, like, demons are given these kind of, like, different identities. And they have, like, I don't know, it's like, oh, this is, the, this is the hardcore demon. And he has a leather jacket. And, like, they're all 30-year-olds so they're playing teenagers on the CBS. And, and we're like, this is, like, the demon that was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And, man, he got mixed up with the wrong crowd. But he's trying to do right. So he's going to partner with his angel to save the day from, I don't know, the teen center getting demolished. I don't know what they do now. But we have so, like, neutered the reality of demons. And I just want to tell you in the supernatural, there are demonic forces and there are demons. And they super hate you. And they super want you to fail. And they want you to die. And they want you to be destroyed. And it is my just prayer and belief and power in life that I love seeing when God stomps them into tiny little pieces and kicks them straight to hell. Right? Amen? Like, they're real. They might wear leather jackets, I don't know. But regardless, they're real and they hate you. And so you, we just need to kind of get on the level of what's happening in the supernatural. People are like, it's one of those weird supernatural churches. It's like, well, I can't make demons not demons. Like, I came to a church that reads the Bible. That's not my problem. <laughs> but what happens is they encounter this man. I'm sorry, we're so off. We're back. <laughs> Mark 5. <laughs> my new son, he decided that... that Two o'clock in the morning was party time. So, you know, we're all over the place today. But Mark 5, verse 1, here's what it says. If you're with me, say amen. It says, and they came to the other side of the sea. And it says, and when Jesus had stepped out of a boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was crying out and cutting himself with stones. So this guy is not extra yoked. He is totally and completely demonically oppressed. Again, it's the, the storm inside is meant to parallel the natural storm he just faced. And he is so oppressed by demonic forces, they can't even bind him with chains. He's so oppressed that he is, I mean, this would be so detestable to the Jewish people, that he is going into the graves and he would cry out and he would cut himself with stones. He was just so overcome by the evil and the demonic oppression that was upon him. And so Jesus comes in and he comes to a place, because Jesus is awesome like this, that culture would have said, do not go to. He are a Gentile people who are dirty and unclean. 
They are living in a Gentile town that we don't like. They are, they are uh, this guy is spiritually unclean because of the demon. He's living in graves, which is also unclean. And he's living near pigs, which are also unclean. Like, why do the pigs matter? Well, trust me, they will. But not only that, since Jewish people did not eat pigs, the pigs were likely being raised for the Romans. And I don't know of all these things which the Jewish people would have hated more, but I would say Romans is pretty high up there. A bit like demons, Romans. And they probably flip-flop depending on the day. And so this was a detestable situation. And yet Jesus comes from opposition into opposition. And we'd say, like, why would God allow such opposition to come against his word? I think a better question is, why would God give you a destiny that isn't worth opposing? Why would God give you a mission, a plan, a purpose in your life that isn't worth the enemy's time? Why would God give you a plan and purpose in your life that is so lame duck that it doesn't even need attention from evil? Like, God, give me one that makes the enemy mad. Give me a plan and purpose for my family and my life that robs hell. Give me a plan and a purpose in my life that puts me on the enemy's hit list. Because you know what? I'm already going to face garbage in this world. I might as well go down swinging. I might as well go out winning and believing for the mission of Jesus Christ in life. And so Jesus steps out of the boat and into the purpose. And it's like, yeah, he, he was disruptible. I want to be a kind of church that the enemy hates. I don't want him to look at Banner Church and be like, well, let's just kind of let them fluctuate in growth. Because they don't really do anything with it anyways. They don't really tell anybody about Jesus. They don't actually love depressed people. They're just really comfortable. And I'm okay with comfort, so we'll just leave them. It's like, no, I want to make him furious. I want to go out and love people that the world hates. I want to embrace people that the world tells me not to hold. I want people to look at me and said, say, friend of sinners. I want them to make fun of me on the internet for the kind of people I choose to love. I want to do everything that pisses the devil off so when I stand upon eternity, I will laugh in his face because of what God has done. Because he's already run the victory. Amen? The, and it's not by my power. I'm, I'm kind of worthless. It's by Jesus. <laughs> it's by his power and his authority. And so what happens in this moment is Jesus breaks the cultural wall. And here's what happens. Verse 6. It says, and when he, the demonically possessed man, saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Okay, so he runs, he falls down at the feet of Jesus. And he says his name, Jesus, son of the most high God. Now, if we take our modern understanding of demons, it's like, oh, maybe this was like a chill demon. And he was like being super respectful. He wasn't actually... Uh, in, in spiritual practice, to say someone's title or proper name in the spirit was considered to have like an upper hand on them. So all throughout ancient history, people would, any kind of like demonic thing or, or uh, you all, all the way back to Egypt, when they would try to do anything in the spirit, they would be, try to name it. They would try to name the spirit. And so to have a proper name was important. And so the enemy, you know, this, this demonic force says the proper name of Jesus Christ. And he calls him. And so then Jesus returns and asks, what is your name? And the enemy says, we're legion for we are many. Now that wasn't his name. That was him being a punk and being tricky and being evil. Because if you remember, I said moments ago, demons are evil. They're not just like in the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> They're evil. And so he's trying to spiritually say, we're, we're legion, we're many. How many people were in a Roman legion? 5,000. So what he's saying is you are one person, Jesus, Son of the Most High God, but we are 5,000. It's arrogant, but, you know, he's a demon. <laughs> and so Jesus doesn't, like, try to, like, go through hours of exorcism and, like, go through the process. The power of Christ compels you. I mean, he technically does that. Uh <laughs> But he doesn't go through this process. What happens? Verse 13, if you're with me, let's read it together. He says, so he gave them permission. Wait, let's read that again. So he gave them permission. Jesus is so powerful 
that demons numbering in the thousands have to get permission to do something. Think about that. The Jesus that you serve, if you serve Jesus, is so powerful, not only in the natural that he can calm the most chaotic force, but in the supernatural that, he, that demons have to ask permission to go into pigs. He gave them permission. The enemy is afraid. The enemy's like, don't torture me. The enemy's like, don't send me out of this place. Send me into pigs. It says the unclean spirits came out, entered the pigs and the herd, numbering 2,000, and rushed down the steep bank and into the sea. The important point, these two things that are happening together, because after this, in just a moment, he's going to go back in the boat and he's going to go across. So what is he trying to show us in this moment that we've seen crossing and then this miracle? Jesus has full authority over the natural and the supernatural. Jesus does not beg them to come out of the man. He gives them permission. He's like, he's like got their foot on the throat and is like, all right, you can go into some pigs. And then I don't know if you can imagine that image of 2,000 pigs just bum rushing off the end of a cliff. But that would, that would disturb you. I don't know what that sounds like, looks like, but it had to be traumatic to the point that people are begging him to leave. But it's important because Jesus is showing in this moment, I have full authority over the natural and the supernatural. See, we live in an age, I think now, where we don't think Jesus has power over the supernatural. We think he doesn't have power over oppression. It's like we're willing to accept maybe that, that God created the world, but he couldn't heal me of depression. The things we're willing to accept. Yeah, God created the world. Jesus, yeah, I believe you died for my sin, but I don't know if you can break this addiction off of me. Like, that's just too much. That's too much oppression. That's too much. It's too many. Jesus, I, I, I believe that you gave yourself for me, but Jesus, you don't know how long I've been looking at pornography. And so how do you expect to break that? Can't tell me how, I can't tell you how many conversations I have like that with people. And they're telling me, I, I don't know, I can be free from this. Because we have accepted in this age that Jesus might have some power, but we have rejected that he is the God, he has power over the natural and the supernatural. Nothing, no oppression is greater than Jesus Christ. Nothing, nothing in your life. Nothing in your family, nothing in your loved one, no oppression that's come against them is greater than Jesus Christ. And as Christians, sometimes we need to be reminded of it because we're faced with the brutality of oppression consistently. We need to be reminded, man, Jesus is still greater. He's greater than this weight that's been resting upon me that I think I'm just going to die with this. He's greater. He's greater than the chaos in the natural. He's greater than the chaos in the supernatural. And I think sometimes when we're facing those storms, when we're facing those supernatural oppositions, we need to remember that he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. The Holy Spirit that dwells within me is stronger than any oppression that could come against me. Now, I'm not saying, my mom's a counselor, she's like looking at me over here. I'm not saying don't go to therapy. <laughs> go to therapy. But I'm saying that nothing will release and free and heal the chaos in your life like Jesus Christ. And I love this last part. I want to read this last part. I'm going to invite the band up. Mark 5.14 says this. Then the herdsmen fled, because they just saw 2,000 pigs dive off a cliff, and told it in the city and the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened, because the pigs were probably already down in the water. And he came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, just sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, 
Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. It says, and he, the man, went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. I love this moment because it's so redemptive. Because Jesus faces his opposition crossing. Then he faces an opposition when he arrives. And what results from it? One of the greatest witnesses to a part of the country and a part of the area spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, showcasing his testimony that was once a tragedy is now a triumph because of Jesus Christ and going throughout. And what's amazing is he goes, he brings the gospel and truth of Jesus Christ with him because where Jesus goes, his power goes. Acts 1.8 says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. It doesn't say you will receive this, this, and this, and this, and this to do and this. It says you will receive power. It's very clear. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Well, what power? The power of Christ. I joked early, the power of Christ compels you. Have you ever seen that movie? But it literally is. It is the power of Jesus Christ. It is not your power. It is not your lineage. It's not your understanding. It is the power of Jesus Christ. It's not how many small groups you've been to. It's not how many discussions you've led. It's not how many worship services you've attended. It is the power of Jesus. It is the power of the Holy Spirit that has been given to you. So that when we face things, when we face storms, when we face opposition, we can still say, that he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. Listen, in your life, you are not here just to check a box off. You are here because either A, you're seeking for an answer. Someone maybe convinced you that you need to come and check it out, and they knew something maybe you didn't know yet, and that's that you need the freedom and hope of Jesus Christ, that if you give your life to Jesus, that he can do a miracle inside you. And that all of us, we have that God-shaped hole that is just aching for something. And that we will be unsatisfied without the Lord. But also you might be here and you are a follower of Christ. And yet in facing the storms and facing the difficulty, as vision begins to stir up, you almost get afraid of getting a dream. Because as vision stirs up, you know opposition is coming. And I feel like today you're supposed to be here to hear that just because you're facing opposition doesn't mean you're going in the right way. But as you stand in that storm, you need to be rooted in the boldness that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That he who is in you is greater than the storm in your marriage. That he who is in you is greater than the tribulation in your relationships. That he who is in you is greater than the anxiety that you feel come against you about how you're raising your kids or their future or when they go to school. That he who is in you is greater than the difficulty that's facing you. Are you with me this morning? See, the church, Christians, we were not meant to be people locked into anxiety. We were meant to be people who stand firm on the truth. We were not meant to be people who judge each other's faith. Like, well, if you just had more faith, then you'd be healed. We're not meant to be the people that look at others and say, well, if you just did this, we're just meant to look inside ourselves and say, do I believe that he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world? Is he who is in me greater than what I'm facing? Though I've been facing it for years, God is is still God and I can still be rooted in the truth. Will I believe that he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world? Would you stand with me this morning? We're going to close here. I'm just going to invite you. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus, we just thank you this morning. We thank you this morning. We're so thankful for you, God. Just in this moment, I, I, if you're wondering why, bow your head, close your eyes. Or, it's just a chance to self-focus. We're so easily distracted, and this just kind of gives us a moment to focus in. If you're here this morning, we're preaching about the freedom that comes through Jesus over the natural and the supernatural. And you have never made that choice to follow Jesus. 
you have never made that choice to give your life to him who loves you so deeply that he defeated death, hell, and the grave. He who could not be defeated by death itself. He loved you so much and he rose again to bring you life, to bring you freedom, not only here, but for eternity. And you stand here questioning, what is my eternity? Who sits on the throne of my heart? We love to say at this church that we say yes to Jesus and you're going to say yes many more times in your life. Every day have to choose to say yes to him, but it starts with the first yes. And if you've never said yes, Jesus, I choose to follow you. And so when I say he who's in you is greater than he who's in the world, you're like, I don't have either of those. I need you, Jesus. I want to give you my life and I want to say yes to you. I know there's many yeses. I don't have all the answers, but I want to make that first yes, Jesus, I choose to follow you to secure my eternity. If that's you in this place and you want to say yes to Jesus this morning, would you just raise your hand and then put it down? Thank you. Thank you. I want to pray over you if you've raised your hand and then I want to really encourage you after service. Remember I said it's not just one yes, it's many yeses as you walk this journey. I'm going to be in the back corner and I want to, I just want to encourage you and really root for you and be in your corner. Um, so if you'd come see me at the end of service, I want to encourage you in that. But And we want to celebrate with you. But I want to pray for you right now. Jesus, we pray for those who just raised their hand and who are making that commitment to say, I say yes to Jesus. God, we just say we take ourselves off the throne of our heart and our life, and we choose you as our Lord and Savior, and we choose to follow you with our life. We say thank you for going to the cross, for taking my sin and shame, for bringing not condemnation, but hope and freedom, and I receive that today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Can we praise for those who raised their hand today? Awesome. I want to pray for just one last thing, and then we're, we're done this morning. The band's going to lead us in the song Anointing, and I love it, uh, the anointing that comes from God. But I want to pray for you this morning. If you are walking through storms or facing things, and you're saying, you know what, I just I want to be rooted in the truth of God in my life, in my family, or my situation, that he who is in me is greater than he's, he who is in the world. And I want to be locked in to that truth, to trust in the Heavenly Father that God is who he says he is, no matter what I'm going through. If that's you, that, that's me today. Would you just lift your hands up? I want to pray for you and encourage you. If you're saying, I want to be just rooted, that he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. I want to be rooted in boldness this morning. I want to be rooted in a boldness as I face difficulty, as I face trying to share the faith that I've received of Jesus Christ, but unsure. I just want to be rooted that, God, you're still great. you got a vision. As you awaken vision, God, I don't need to be afraid of it. God, would you begin to awaken vision in our hearts like never before? And as we face difficulty and as we face storms, God, I pray you would just constantly reaffirm your fatherhood, that we are adopted sons and daughters of you, God, that you have welcomed us with open arms. And I pray this morning that as we're walking through the storms and the difficulty the opposition, whether natural or supernatural, God, I pray that we would just be rooted in your love, that we would be rooted in your truth, that he who is for us, he who is with us, he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And we stand upon your truth today. And God, we ask just for a fresh anointing, affirming what you're speaking. God, that we are with you, that you are with us, and that no matter what we face, that we are not alone.